This season, there's something we wanted to talk to all of our ACDC Beyond the Thunder listeners about that's really important to us. As you know, what we do here is free of advertisements, so there's no revenue stream coming into this show. This is strictly a passion project. But if you enjoy the program and you believe in what we're doing, we're asking to donate what you can to each episode of ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. By doing so, you contribute to making dreams come true through the Make-A-Wish and Nordif Robbins Music Therapy Foundations. And 100% of those profits go directly to these deserving causes. How can you help? Simply go to beyondthethunder.com and hit the charity button before or after listening to each episode, and that's it. Even if you give $1, $2, $5, Greg, Eric, and I would be so thankful, and we salute the ACDC Beyond the Thunder community for leaning in. That's beyondthethunder.com. Welcome to Season 4 of ACDC Beyond the Thunder. Kicking off with an electrifying premiere episode with your thunderous hosts, Kurt Squires, Greg Ferguson, and Eric Hume. Are you ready? Hello there, it's season four of ACDC Beyond the Thunder, the one and only podcast that reverberates all of the passion and all of the stories of diversity and damnation from this Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band by the name of ACDC, who've affected us in truly enlightening ways. I'm your host, Kurt Squires. To my right is Triple G, Mr. Greg Ferguson, along with our mighty rock and roll train engineer, Eric Kielb. Hey, guys, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Yeah, let's fire it up. And Kurt, although in life, most of the time, you're told not to look into the bright light. That's right. But today... We're going to ask our brave listeners to ignore that sound advice and embrace the next guest who, quite frankly, that's all he does. Not to mention a beloved member of the ACDC family who's made everything look amazing since 1990. Yes, we're talking about Mr. Charlie Cosmo Wilson. Yes, and today is finally the day that we get to make him a part of our ACDC Beyond the Thunder family after trying to track Cosmo down for many months now. Which makes complete sense because this guy is a true rock and roll nomad. Such a fun-loving soul. And this guy, he is brilliant, pun intended. (laughs) And what a story Cosmo has to share with our fellow ACDC fans out there all around the globe. Well, Kurt, I'm I'm psyched. You know, Cosmo's a great guy and and he's going to give us all the ins and outs of of touring with ACDC, lighting. Uh, it's going to be a great conversation. Yeah, and to be inside the circus is always exciting because you're there as a fan, but you're not there to see what they go through. That's something that I think some of us are glad we don't have to because it's a lot of work, right? Oh, yeah. I, I can't imagine. I mean, there's so many moving objects for a lighting designer and a lighting director to manage during a show. Like, And, and Cosmo style... He does everything in a manual fashion. There's no pre-programmed lighting scenario for each song. He's there, hands on the keyboards, always just kind of keeping up with the song and doing what he does best is is making beautiful lighting and just making all of those live ACDC moments really 
impactful. And as we found out, it's more than just light. This guy is uh, sort of an artist, a creative genius. He's coming up with concepts. There's more to it than meets the eye than just a lighting director slash designer. Well, let's get into it, Kurt. Let's do it. Today, our guest is one of the most award-winning rock lighting directors and designers in the world. He's been involved with approximately 50 bands and events from Black Sabbath to Foreigner, the Scorpions, Van Halen, and major events like the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert at Wembley, which means, ladies and gentlemen, that this guy has also lit Spinal Tap. Uh, More importantly, Cosmo's been the lighting director and designer on more than 700 shows for ACDC alone, including several live concert films across six different continents. In fact, we might as well start the petition to get ACDC on Antarctica right now. But in the immortal words of the late great Bon Scott, who said, let there be light, we here at ACDC Beyond the Thunder, today we say, let there be Cosmo. Charlie Wilson, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's going to be hard to keep up with the uh, introduction, but thank you for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> we know that you are essentially on the road all the time, so where are you today? I am at home today, which is unusual. Yes, I, I, last year I was on the road 10 months. Wow. Unbelievable. You said, speaking of last year... You had a chance to reflect on what an incredible year that was for you. You won two Pinnacle Awards for lighting director and and designer. And Gateway, your company winning three Pinnacle Awards, on the road nearly, like you said, 300 days working with Slash, Blondie, Journey, Aerosmith, and the mighty Judas Priest, (laughs) all of which who have been inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's a pretty impressive year. Yeah, no, it, uh, it it's funny because coming out of the pandemic with nothing to to, to that, it was a uh, it was unexpected, and uh, I, I got to say I loved every minute of it. it. It was hard being away from home, but it was fantastic just to be back out there, especially so full force. I was kind of shocked to see you're you're quite the Judas Priest fan. That's like almost as equal to ACDC. I was out there during their induction, we were trading photos, and I'm like, Cosmo, man, this is awesome that you were at that event. Yeah, I was thrilled to be there for that. I mean, it's um, I was there at the ACDC induction back in, uh, I think, 2003. Yes. And and uh, it, it, it just, you know, it's it, there's mixed reviews on the Hall of Fame, but at the end of the day, it's an honor to see bands like Judas Priest get in. And for me to have so many bands have to have worked with the Hall of Fame really, really blows my mind. I would have never thought as, you know, 13-year-old Charlie Wilson that I would be working for Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame bands. Well, it, I wanted to um, jump back to your 13-year-old self or your teenage self. And you said your first uh, concert was Kiss back in 76 when you were a teenager. And... Um, you were obviously impressed with the show, but also the spectacle of that show. And then who'd have thought six or seven years later, your first gig would be working for Kiss in Lakeland, Florida. Talk about a full circle. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you know, in, in uh, December 12th, 1976. I remember the date. And, and uh, you know, back then I wanted to be a rock star. And, you know, I was a guitar player and Ace Freely was my idol. And uh, 
And I saw them and I, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. I mean, it was a little tiny arena in Lakeland, Florida. But it's funny, to, the, to this day, the lighting rig hanging from the, the rafters stood out to me. The guys climbed up ladders to run trust spots stood out to me. But I didn't think about being a lighting guy back then. I just wanted to be a rock star. And you still have... I think I heard you still have a piece of confetti from that Kiss show. Is that right? You'll love this. I had bell bottoms with cuffs, so they filled up with confetti. <laughs> and I've still got the confetti. I've got my ticket stub, and I've got the Kiss poster. Uh, it's a it's a, oh, it's wow. a foil poster, and it's hanging on the wall over there. That's perfect. And I remember being that age, going into my room, dressing up like Angus Young, cranking up the music, and putting on a show for myself. But the the one thing that was truly remarkable was how light could transform your very own show in your bedroom, whether it be strobe lights or black lights or what have you. Did you ever experience that as a teenager too? Well, yeah. I mean, I had a black light and and I, I did enjoy the lighting aspect of it. And I, I had, my dad was an was a interior design architect. So we had all kinds of different lighting fixtures and stuff. So I was interested in light then. But yeah, even with the, the after going to attending rock and roll shows and I was seeing lights, it's still at the time, I didn't want to be a lighting designer designer or director, but I, I love playing with lights in my room. And like most crew members, you originally wanted to be in a band. Yeah. So you moved from Florida to New York City yep. and instead ended up doing a lot of backline work and you were a drum tech, correct? Yeah. My first gig, uh, a friend of mine that I went to high school with up there said that a band named Falconetti needed a uh, drum tech and could, could I do it? And I, I said, yes, even though I knew nothing about being a drum tech, but I mean, I, I played in a band, <laughs> so I was familiar with drums, but I said yes. And, uh, and I went and worked and got a gig. And, and then you eventually, did you just say, I'm done with this, I'm going back to Florida, or did you actually have a gig waiting for you back there? No, no, no. I, I, I worked for, for uh, I'm really good with dates, so excuse me, but May 10th, 1979 was my first gig with the band. Wow. Uh, and that was Falcon Eddie. And then, uh, you know, I, 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 back then you worked for everybody. You know, once you started working, you, every band wanted a guitar tech, drum tech, bass tech, keyboard tech. So I started working for any band that would have me in New York. And I was just working nonstop. And uh, I went back to Florida just because it was, you know, the rock and roll at that time, plus New York was in a, it was it was kind of a bad place. Uh, music, rock and roll was just, I mean, coming back into vogue from disco. The, there was a band called The Knack. You know The Knack. They had the song My Shrimp. That was oh, in yeah. that period of time. Yep. I was going back and forth in the early 80s, 79 to the early 80s. And, uh, and then I just started working locally, and I ended up with a union card and started working any concert I could get because I wanted to go on the road. And your first touring gig was The Cure as the lighting crew chief, is that right? What had happened is they were playing and they did a date in Canada. The two lighting crew were from Britain and they didn't have work visas for whatever reason. And I got a call from uh, the guy that owned a lighting company in Dallas. What happened is the guys got deported and they needed a crew immediately. So I was one of the guys and I flew up there and there was no crew chief and there was no crew. And I just took over. You know, I'd done enough shows by that time that I knew what I was doing. And I always learned. I'm, I'm a really good learner. So I just took over and, and I ended up as crew chief because there was no one else. So I did a great job. And the next tour I did after that was Genesis. Which was a huge tour. I mean, that that yeah. was, you know, Genesis in the 80s, were, they were massive. Oh, especially Invisible Touch and, and uh, MTV. I mean, the whole combination of that, it was, it was huge. It was the biggest tour of the year. You know, we even flew the Concorde from New York to Paris. I mean, it was fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Which is, I know, one of your hobbies, right? You're into aircrafts and all that. Well, you know, when I was in high school, I, I wanted to get out and go to the Air Force Academy become a fighter pilot. I smoked pot and started playing guitar, so... <laughs> 
that's the way I went. <laughs> it's kind of a it's kind of a fun alternative route, right? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. So that led to eventually the Rolling Stones on their Steel Wheels tour, which I believe Living Color. Yep. Oh, that, they were one of the bands that opened up. We had Guns N' Roses open up in Los yeah. Angeles. Talk about a tour. That's unbelievable. And this is your first gig as a lighting director, correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, I did the Cure into Genesis. Then I did I did the Cure again. I mean, I did a few tours uh, in 87, 88, 89. I, I worked for Barbara Mandrell. I uh, did the NXS Kick Tour, which was another huge tour at the time. Right. I did a Crowded House Tour. And the Stones started in the summer of 89. At the time, I was a crew chief. There was two two separate systems. You know, we called it the red and the blue system. And each one had a crew chief. And the and then they had the universal team, which went to every gig. You know, the backline guys, sound engineer, lighting director. But what had happened is the lighting director was a guy named Sean Richardson. Unbeknownst to me, he was going to go to Tina Turner. Let me step back for a minute. Generally, guys on the lighting crew run lights for the opening act. So I was one of those guys that started running lights for the opening act. And that's when I realized I loved lighting. I mean, I'm an artist anyway, but I loved running lights and calling spots. What was happening beyond my knowledge is that Patrick Woodruff, the overall d- designer for the Stones, and Sean Richardson, the, the, uh, the director and operator, they were grooming me to take over because the show was about three hours long. Sean would get up to use the restroom to go pee. And I would sit down for a song or two and run the lights. And I, I think they saw that I had the talent. And they realized, you know what? He can take over when you leave. So we get to Japan. He's not there. And Patrick Goodner says, can you run the sh- a little bit of the show? We'll split the duties. So he ran part of the first show and, and I ran the rest. And second show was a combination. I ran more. And then third show, he said, you did a great job. Do you want to take over for the Stones? And so I took over for the Stones after Japan. And we did another five or six months of, of touring. So, yeah, my first lighting director gig was the Rolling Stones. Wow. At that point, did you feel like, wow, I'm climbing the ladder really fast? Or do you feel like, no, I put in my dues? Yes. I mean, by that time, I'd been in the business for 10 years, 11 years. Yeah, I mean, I was couldn't believe I was running lights for the Stones. But on the other hand, I just kind of did it without a thought. Yeah. Well, Greg and I always have this saying about two things, ability and attitude. Oh, yeah. And it seems like those are the two things you have in your back pocket. Well, that's what I always say. You know, when I'm talking about my lighting crew on a new tour, I say it's it's 50% attitude and 50% aptitude. You know, I want you to be good at what you're doing, but I want you to be a good person and 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 enjoy it and be happy and positive. And so that combination, you know, it's, it's I, I've had guys that are really good at what they do, but they're just assholes, you know, and then you have guys that are really, really nice, but they don't know what they're doing. So you want that happy medium. And that, that's what I search for in, in the guys that, I, that work with me. Well, given... Keith Richards' love of ACDC. What a great transition to go to ACDC after the Stones on the Razor's Edge tour in 1990. What was your reaction to that news of getting that gig? Well, we were, we were finishing up the Stones tour. We were in Europe. And Patrick Woodward says, I have a gig after this that you might be interested in. I said, who would that be? He said, how would you like to do ACDC? And I was like, Oh, you got to be kidding me. I said, of course. Yes, I would love to do ACDC. <laughs> so so that's, that's how that happened. Now, is ACDC more your speed compared to the Rolling oh, Stones? Yeah. yeah, I figured so. I mean, I love the Stones. There's a lot of bands I like, but I prefer heavy rock, hard rock, heavy metal. Yeah. And ACDC is not heavy metal, but they're, they're harder rock. And I love, especially guitar rock. And, you know, of course, Angus yes. and Malcolm, you know, that's guitar rock. I had seen an interview with you where you said the first thing that impressed you about ACDC is that they did a full-blown rehearsal and they played their hearts out to nobody. Yeah, to, to nobody. And we did rehearsals and being up to them went to Worcester. I was blown away that Angus, the whole band, 
played like they were playing in front of 20,000 people. And I thought, what a, what a testament to how they care about their craft and taking care of the fans and, and, and as, as the band used to say, the kids. I mean, it's, it's just that, that right off the bat showed me, you know, what I was what I was getting into, and it made me so proud. Do all bands do that? No, no, they don't. Not all all bands don't do that. I mean, they they rehearse, but there's just it was something different about ACDC. I mean, ACDC and Angus especially was up there on stage playing his heart out to nobody. Wow, it was, it's different. I mean, everybody does rehearsals and stuff, and they you know they play hard and stuff like that. But it was it was it was a uh, it was it was just different. Like I've not, I've never seen any band before or since. You were the first guy to bring moving lights to ACDC, something that they had never done. Were they open to that? Because they seemed like they wouldn't be. Well, I mean, you know, it was it was, it was Patrick Woodruff. Patrick Woodruff was there, and they we had uh, we had very light we had very light twos and fours. Uh, yeah, and it was the first. And Angus Angus didn't want him. He said, "Ah, the twinkle lights," you know. But I mean, we also had a bunch of you know, incandescent, the old school park hands. We had big, huge pods. Yeah. So it was still a rock show, and the and the the moving lights were more incidental. I mean, there was a lot of them. To this day, I still, this is the thing about old school LDs like myself. I run a, run the show, whether it's moving lights or not, I run it like an old school rock show. It's, it's more a, a rock show than, you know, as Angus says, twinkly lights. <laughs> and so we made a rock show for them and, and they, lo- they loved it. I saw that tour several times and I remember watching Chris Slade come up from the floor, the strobe lights flickering with the thunder and lightning. What do you remember from that particular tour as something that you brought to the table that was your idea? Well, they, the one thing with that tour and the thing I'm probably the thing I'm most proud of with ACDC is let's go back to Rolling Stones for a minute. So we had inflatables on Rolling Stone on the Rolling Stones. We had a uh, we had the two girls um, and then in the Europe, we had the dogs. We had, the, you know, different inflatables. Oh, yes, that's right. So we went out on that, and, and Patrick had come up with an idea of the Angus face from uh, Highway to Hell, you know, with the horns. And he had a, razor's, a razor blade in his mouth. So it was a combination of Highway to Hell, you know, and the Razor's Edge. And I said, we, you know, they were doing a whole lot of Rosie, and I said, we need a big, huge, fat, inflatable Rosie. And they were like, oh, my God, what a great idea. Wait, that that was your idea, Cosmo? Yes, it was. Wow. That's so cool. Does anybody know that? Uh, Not really. They do now. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Well, we talked to Chris Slade, who also said that nothing ever went wrong with ACDC. Can you concur? Uh, yeah, I've got stories, but no, nothing. No, it, it's amazing. No, I agree with what he's saying. And that, yes, nothing goes wrong with ACDC. Yeah, I guess he was referring to the clockwork nature yes. of running the show. I mean, exactly. I mean, everything, you know, our, our production manager, uh, Dale Scherseth, Opie. Yes. You know, he's been there since 1996. You pay attention. The band, they want you to pay attention. So you always, like Opie says, we take notes from the last tour and carry it over to this tour. Just in a nutshell, when people talk about me doing lights and how much does the band have to say about lights, and it's 
they say something. Some bands are more in depth, but I guess the point I'm making here is they pay me so they don't have to talk to me about lighting. And what I mean by that is they want to come in and do their craft. They want to play, entertain the, the fans. They don't want to have to worry about lighting and sound and, and the set and effects. I mean, of course, they have an input and then they talk about it. But once we're there, it's like I want them to concentrate on doing what they're doing on the stage. And that's what I that's what it is. We make it so they can do their show without thinking about anything going wrong. Not only was that your first tour with ACDC, but a baptism by fire as lighting director for ACDC, because they they had a Monsters of Rock live in Donington, which is a motion picture, plus the millions of people that showed up in Moscow, which had to be a career highlight for you, correct? Oh, well, I mean, you know, playing Donington, of course, was, a, you know, an iconic moment in my life to play that you know, the, an iconic festival like that. And, you know, it was, it was our tour. It was, uh, I actually have a post. I know you can't see it on that, but there's that. Poster yes. There. And you, the bands that were there, it was a, it was an incredible thing doing Donington, you know, it, with the build up to it. Uh, it was, it was probably the second or third tour show on that leg, but yeah, it was a, it was an honor for me to, to do it with ACDC. But like you said, the whole thing in Moscow, the, the, the build up to that, especially with the politics of, what had happened with the, the, the you know uh, the Russian people, and the, and the mayor of Moscow wanted us there uh, to thank the people for not having a um, a revolution, you know, and and it was incredible. That show was incredible in so many. I mean, I could write a book on that show alone. Yes, and you should write a book. <laughs> when is that coming out? Well, uh, to be honest with you, I mean, I'll give a, a plug for it. I am I have written a book and oh. I'm just editing it now, and I'm hoping to get it out. Probably not this year, but 2024. That's amazing. Oh, excellent. That's fantastic. I'm so glad you did that. What a lot of work. Well, it's good. I've got a co-writer who's really helped me a lot. And the rock stars that have, I've talked to about it are all 100% behind me. And that makes me feel so good, which means they trust me. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, the, the, the Monsters of Rock, you know, we didn't end the tour there, but we ended Europe there. And then we went to Australia after that, Australia and New Zealand. But yeah, it was, man, what a, to this day, I mean, 1.6 million people were there. Crazy. Wow. I have to think that some really crazy stuff went down in that crowd. Births and deaths and <laughs> who knows what's going on. Well, I mean, I've got video from it. And I mean, it was a weird combination of all these, you know, Russians having a great time at a concert. And, and for instance, you know, you have the barricade, you know, you have the, the, the barricade that you put out in the crowd, right? Yeah. Well, we had two lines of barricades that went out to the mix position, but they wanted a barricade. You know, there's so many people there. So they had two more barricades of humans of, of uh, they were there. They were a Russian or Soviet militiamen. They had 20,000 Soviet militia and they basically did lines just like barricades and you know there was mosh pits going on and they were beating them with their batons i mean it was the most you know unbelievable and in a way heartbreaking thing but the kids just kept <laughs> dancing and it was incredible wow well i have a question for you if we were to list an acdc tour let's say chronologically would you be able to highlight your favorite piece of creative work so for instance if we were to say the ball breaker tour what moment stands out for you that you lent your expertise to? I can give you two on the ball breaker. So the best one is the beginning of the show when there's this big monolithic wall with gargoyles on it and a big crane with a ball. And that was all done manually. And that 
ball swinging back and forth. I mean, you know, we didn't know when it was going to hit. It was it was done manually, so it was just every night it was different and exciting. Yeah. And when that ball hit the wall and the wall came tumbling down and, and Angus comes out from under the back line, oh, my God, it was such, such a great opening of the show. Right. thing about that show i liked is, is brian johnson jumped on that ball and sang ball break, crazy you know and that was yeah he he is a crazy man i love that moment it's kind of similar to jumping on the bell but this was being hoisted up onto the yes. ball and <laughs> it was great you know and then miley cyrus did it years later it's like brian did the first. <laughs> how about uh stiff upper lip any moments that uh, cosmo brought that you uh want to reflect on well, yeah, okay, stiff upper lip, The you know, that was having the um, that statue, you know, the 30-foot Angus statue, you know, that you like the album cover? Yes, called uh, Junior. Yeah, Junior, yes. What I came up with that is the band wanted a more exciting entry. So what I came up with was to do a big, huge frame. You know, like when the football players run on the field and they run through the round circle and burst through the paper? Yes. We actually, I said, let's do this. Let's do a big, huge frame, and it can burst through the paper just like a football player. And it did, and it was much more impactful. Yes, I remember the guitar neck going right through the paper. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the pyro going off. I mean, it was a great effect. That's awesome. And then, of course, there's the the hooking up with the Stones in between tours for the European. In 2003. Yeah, the European double bill and the SARS show, which I was at. Yep. Any fun little known ACDC Stones stories there? You know, the Stones, I, I, they'd, already, they'd already had a bunch of dates, but I think these three particular shows were not selling as well. So I think what had happened is Angus and Malcolm had seen the Stones in Australia and they came up with this. They hatched this idea to open up for three shows in, in, uh, in Europe. And the cool thing about that is we also did two shows. We did, we did them in clubs. It's, you know, it's rare you see ACDC in a club, but that's another story. Wow. But the, the Stone shows were, were interesting because it was all in, they were all three in Germany. You think about it, is, this, is it the same crowd? It is and it isn't. I mean, I like both bands. A lot of people like both bands, but it's in some ways a different crowd. So we were, you know, we were intrigued to see the mix of these people. And it was funny, the first show it was almost like they were, you know, fist to cuffs with each other, you know, <laughs> Stones, ACDC, Stones, ACDC. Right. We watched them come together because they realized they were both there for the same purpose of seeing bands they loved. But the funniest thing for me um, with, this, with that the first show is ACDC went on first. It was still daylight. And you could see this. You could see Mick and Keith. You could see the stone standing on the side of the stage watching the show. Yeah. And ACDC went out and kicked ass. I mean, they rocked. I mean, it was one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. This is Toronto. And I think the band, I think the Stones looked at this and said, oh, shit. <laughs> We've got to follow these guys now. So I, the that show, I, I, it's not, I'm, I'll just put it this way. It wasn't the best Stone show I ever saw. I mean, you know, it was a great Stone show, but it wasn't the best one. But I'll tell you what, the second one was one of the best Stone shows I've ever seen. So it upped their game. Because after that show, they went back and regrouped and said, okay, boys, yeah. let's go kick some ass. <laughs> so it was almost a battle of the bands in a good way. You know, each band made the other better. That's awesome. So that was a great three shows we did before. Was Mick kind of uh, intimidated by ACDC at all? Well, I, 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 I don't. No, and I wouldn't say they were intimidated. I think they were just um, shocked at how great they played that first first night. Yeah. And then there was uh, the Black Eyes tour, which sadly was Malcolm's last uh, yeah. tour. 
were you seeing signs of Mal kind of fading on that tour? I mean, he did so great during that tour. You know, he, he, you know, we didn't really know what was going on. He was still Mal. I mean, sometimes you could notice. Yeah. We, we knew that there was issues and, and, and we were concerned about it. But I mean, I was blown away that, you know, it was like it was every show was, was, was like an ACDC show, you know? Oh, yeah. And once we got going, it was great, you know, and, and, um, and, and yeah, I didn't even really think about it. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the tour, you know, we found the news that, that he'd been diagnosed with a, a form of dementia and, and stuff. And, yeah. you know, I saw I saw the band, you know, nearly every night and stuff like that. And he, he soldiered through, which is what he always did. And, yeah. And he made it through to the end of the tour, which, uh, you know, after, as I said, after, you know, hindsight being 2020, when we found out everything that was going on, we, we realized, you know, and I did. I just, as I said, I had more respect for the man than ever when, when he went through that. Yeah that tour and managed to do as well as he did knowing what uh, you know we found out later unbelievable and greg and i were at the last rocker bus show actually in philly i have to say one of my favorite moments was a lighting moment not because you're on the show okay when they played live wire i actually saw the show in north carolina when they played it for the first time the way the stage looked i think it was blue and green it was so tasty elegant understated so cool it was almost as important as hearing that song for the first time in 30 years Thank you very much. I mean, that's 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 what I attempt to do. You know, I I, I I try to enhance the song, and you know, I try to use colors that. I mean, you know, loving the music is helpful because for me, when I love a song, I see colors, and and that's what I saw in that song. You know. Wow, that's interesting. So you see colors for songs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, there's stuff that makes sense. It's like you know, in Foreigner, they they saw their song "Cold as Ice." I mean. Cold colors are blue and green and lavender sure. and stuff like that. Hot colors are red and amber and yellow and stuff. So I mean, it makes some of it makes sense. I mean, in this, when you talk about a song like "Highway to Hell," is always going to be red and amber. Yeah, you know, because it's flames and stuff like that. But just um, you know, like "Whole Lot of Rosie" has always been pinks and lavenders to me. It's a, you know, it's a chick. <laughs> you know? So it just I just see colors when I hear, especially music. It's got to be music I like and yeah, it sets the mood. But yeah, I thank you for that because I. I was so happy to hear songs like that. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I remember Brian saying, it's not easy to change a set list and it affects the crew, affects the whole touring mechanism. Yeah. Can you expound on that? Because, I mean, when Axel came in to uh, fill in, it seemed like he was coercing Angus to change up the set list quite often. Oh, yeah. How did that affect you? It depends. I mean, my show is not pre-programmed. I mean, I have the set list laid out, and so I have it set so that I, I go to the next song in, in the order. But if they go to another song, I just pick that other song and, and go to it. Uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect me. It, it just depends. It, it depends on if there's an effect in the song. If you have a, something like, especially with moving lights or tr you know, trusses, or you have a, a set piece that changes or a lift that comes up, you have to be careful because they're presetting for that. Right. Yeah, I mean, for me, like Brian will say the wrong song, and Angus is like, 
once you said it, we're playing, <laughs> you know, and, and I, as I said, I just have to click that song and start running it. Well, that's good. You do it manual. Actually, I've watched you during an ACDC show and folks, I got to tell you, if you ever see Cosmo during an ACDC set or any show, it looks like he's actually a band member <laughs> because the way he's punching the board is like a keyboard almost. And if ACDC were to ever have a keyboard player, which will never happen, but it's almost like you are the sixth member because you're, you're doing it live, it's manual, and it's, it's like you're working as hard as the band. Well, I appreciate that. I I'm, I'm appreciate you, you notice a lot of people come to me after the show and say, wow, you were playing, you were playing like you were playing with the band. And I always say that, I mean, I have a, I have a keyboard or console. Instead of sound coming out, light comes out. You know, so it's it's the same same kind of thing, and it's and that, that's the one reason classic rock bands like me, and the reason I like classic rock bands is because it's not, you know, there's no it's it's not pre-recorded, it's not um, uh, Pro Tools, it's them playing, and you know, especially with a band like Aerosmith, you know, who I, I I'm gonna I, I don't mean this in a derogatory term, sloppy, and I mean it, but I mean good sloppy, they 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 play and they jam and they change. Yes, I and mean, the only way you can do that is if you run it manually. So I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, obviously I'm not a member of the band, but I'm still playing along with them like like I'm playing. It. Well, it, how long does it take you to set up for an ACDC show? In terms of on a daily basis or preparing for the tour? Uh, on a daily basis on the road. Uh, well, I mean, you know, like I said before, with Opie and, and, the, and the team that we have, we, um, I mean, generally, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a long day. I mean, the rigging, rigging guys are in at six or seven in the morning. Lighting guys are in at eight, you know, but, uh, but I mean, the, the rig is up in the air and everything's ready to go by one or two in the afternoon. Wow. You know? Wow. Um, so it's, it's, a uh, it's, you know, a lot of thought goes into the design as part of that as well to make sure it goes up quickly. Yep. Um, but, but, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, we're, you know, we've done shows where we've loaded in at four in the afternoon and still been up in time for showtime. Uh, Greg's more of the technical guy. Greg, did you have any technical questions? One question is like, how do you, when you have a when you have a tour that's going from continent to continent, how do you deal with that? Do you you don't carry all your gear with you, but do you have a, a new set in a new country? Well, no. I mean, it it, it depends. I mean, let's talk about ACDC because ACDC is different. Uh, I, I wanted to. Can I expound on something for a sure. second here? Let's take two bands. Let's take the Scorpions, who I've worked for. I worked for about twelve years, and ACDC. ACDC is very. It's important to them to bring the show to the kids. They, the whole full production, they don't want anybody to see anything less than another kid or another fan saw in another place. They want to make sure that they get the full entire 100% package. What that does, though, is makes it logistically difficult to do small towns and hamlets and far reaches. Of, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Certain small places, it's very, very expensive. Not we couldn't get there, but it's very expensive to get there. Yeah. A lot of logistical uh, expense and, and also just uh, complications. Uh, this, the, now on the other side, the Scorpions—they like their production. They've always, but you know, not as big as ACDC. But their whole thing is bringing the music to as many kids as they can, as many fans as they can. So I see both sides, but I appreciate ACDC because ACDC's always been known for their over-the-top production. So to give anything less than that would would short sale the, the people who come to see the show. So I, 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 you know, I appreciate that. We did it. We did in, I think it was 96 or 2000. We went to Japan from Australia and we couldn't bring everything just because everything had to be air freighted. So I, I had to augment some stuff with different lighting in Japan and, and it, we did it. You know, it was fine. It worked. 
that was the only time we've ever done anything like that. But we bring everything everywhere. We either put it in containers and ship it across the ocean uh, or they air freight it, you know, which is obviously stupidly expensive, especially these days. Right. Um, you know, but I mean, I, like, you know, when I work with Aerosmith, we don't bring everything. We, we get augmented by local lighting, sound and video companies. Here's the thing. It's more doable now because more countries have more gear uh, so they can, you know, facilitate our needs. Um, but uh, ACDC has always been about bringing everything because they know it works. You know, and, and, I, and I, I love that and I appreciate that. And they, and they go to great expense to make sure that happens. So that just attests to how they feel about taking care of the fans. Your first lighting design gig for a tour was David Lee Roth, I believe, who is very complimentary of your work. And now, all these years later, how do you present to bands like ACDC? Is it a full-blown presentation? You know, is it on a napkin? Pretty much they still start on napkins or a piece of blank type, you know, printing, uh, you know, copy paper. Yeah. I mean, with ACDC, you know, I worked with Patrick Woodruff for, for many years. You know, we worked together on the Stones, obviously. And he's the overall designer of, of the lights. And, and the, you know, we come up with a concept. We talk about things. Uh, we talk to the band, you know. Uh, you know yeah, you, first of all, we get the name of the album and what the context of the album is and, and try to work that into the, to the show. The, you know, not just the lighting design, but the set design, the video content. You know, and, and, and as, as I said previously, some bands have more input. Other bands have less. Uh, with ACDC, we talk about it in the beginning and get the concept down. And then me and Patrick run with it and we just do it. And then, then basically in, in a situation like this, Patrick would go and present it to the band. It's like we just did a thing. I did a thing with Aerosmith's 50th anniversary in Fenway. And we had a, a Amy Tinkham was, was basically the production designer. We were presenting to the band and I said, you present it to the band. It needs to be one person, and that's that's you know it doesn't need to be a whole gaggle of people with the band. It needs to be one person who can look at them and ask and answer questions, um, and that's how it works with Patrick Woodruff. And and uh, you know then he just gives it to me and says, "Here we go." Who from ACDC do you deal with the most? Well, it used to be Malcolm. Now it, it's Angus. Yeah, he's the one who wants to know, and he's the one you present things to and ask things about. And he comes up with ideas. Yep, I'll, I'll come up with an idea and I'll present it to him and. He kind of lets us run with it. He, you know, we've been there so long that they trust us. And like I said, back to what I said at the beginning, he pays me so he doesn't have to talk about it. Yeah, right. You know, so. Right. Peace of mind. <laughs> yes. So we had heard that Power Up was ready to go. It was, you know, they had the video shoot. Was everything ready as far as props and schedule and set list? How far down the mix did you get? Well, no, no. We were, you know, as far, from my point of view, we hadn't gone anywhere with it. I mean, it was... It was talked about. I'd heard that we were, you know, a date range. I never learned anything more than that because COVID happened. I mean, I was hoping that we were going to go out the end of 2020. Yep. You know, so. Were you ever called or are you ever called in for video shoots? Uh, rarely. Yep. Rarely. Yeah, yeah. most video shoots, they, the only time I'd be called in for a video shoot if they were shooting on the tour. Like we did uh, Money Talks. That was, we did that in Philadelphia. Oh, right, right. It's more of a live. Stuff like that. Whenever we're on tour and they want to do a video, then I obviously come in and run the lights for it. Right. We um, wanted a little fun section. We, we know Angus Young has his schoolboy uniform. Brian has his English working cap. And you, Cosmo, hailing from Florida and your happy-go-lucky attitude, have your signature Hawaiian shirts. So we also are wearing Hawaiian shirts in honor of you today. And we know that you have, would you say, over 300? Yeah, I've, I've, I used to have one for every day of the year, but I had to, I had to cut back. It was just too <laughs> so we got to ask, have you ever gifted a Hawaiian shirt to the members of ACDC? 
No, I, I've never. I've gifted them before, but not to the members of ACDC. Okay. I think Angus would look good one on the. You'd look good in one on the beach in Australia. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for the Cosmo style ACDC Hawaiian shirt on their website. <laughs> Haven't seen it yet, but so your given birth name is Charlie, correct? Yes, Charles. When and where did you acquire the loving nickname of Cosmo? I'll try to give you the condensed version. When I started working for the union and the, well, you know, as we know, when I worked for KISS was one of my first, my first concert in Lakeland. They had the, the Miss USA pageant signed a contract with Lakeland Civic Center to do three shows down there. They did Miss Teen USA, I think, in 83. Then 84 and 85, they did um, Miss USA pageants. And at the time, there was a New York stagehand who was a head carpenter. And I worked with him directly because I was a carpenter on the, you know, the, the, for the local union. And uh, he was one of these New York guys. He would just give me, a, he would call everybody something, you know, yo, uh, you know, his first thing he called me was uh, Rasputin. He goes, yo, Rasputin, <laughs> hand me that board over there. <laughs> so um, he, he named me that. For, and then a few days later, he called me Cosmo Brown, you know, and, you know, it's just some New York guy calling everybody different nicknames, you know. So a few days later, he said to me, you know, I give everybody nicknames because they work hard for me and I like them. Ah. He says, uh, he says, you've reached my second tier. And he's trying to motivate me. And he says, he says, if you continue to work hard like you're doing, I'm going to give you another name. So I worked really hard the next week. So finally, a few days later, he says to me, all right, you reached my third plateau. And I said, awesome. He says, you got to do one more thing for me. And I said, what's that? And he said, tell me the nickname I gave you. And I said, shit, I can't remember. <laughs> he said, all right. He says, you reached the third plateau, but you're going to be Cosmo Brown. <laughs> I said, okay. So, you know, I had a few guys on, the, on the, my lo- you know, the local calling me Cosmos, Cosmo Brown, stuff like that. Fast forward a couple of years later, 1986, I'm out on Genesis. I'm on the lighting crew. Uh, we have a guy who's our crew chief and head rigger. His name is Charlie Boxhall. And Morris Leiter, it's funny, Morris Leiter, who was the production manager of, of Genesis, he doesn't remember this, but he says, we can't have two Charlies on the lighting crew. Uh-huh. He says, since you're the new guy, you need to come up with a nickname or we're going to give one to you. <laughs> and I'm like, boy, I do not want somebody giving me a nickname. Right. Something like sperm head or God only knows what. <laughs> so I said Cosmo. And he said, all right, Cosmo it is. Oh, brilliant. And that's where it started. And I actually had it legally changed in 2000 just because everybody knew me as Cosmo. Really? Yeah. That's fantastic. I that's didn't cool. know that. Wow. Well, Cosmo, we've done some digging, and we know, other than being a lighting aficionado, your hobbies include cooking, eating, guns, fishing, (laughs) gardening, airplane models, and air shows. And we know this because you're such a prolific soul on social media. (laughs) But uh, we also noticed a photo of your office and what it looks like after you've been on the road for weeks on end with mail spilling all over your desk. And we were wondering if we could play I Spy with that photo. Oh, sure. Okay. We saw a bunch of Rubik's Cubes. Can you explain that? I, I love Rubik's Cubes. I love, I love the original ones just because they're, they're iconic. You know, I still have a couple still in the original box, and it's got to be a Rubik's Cube. Okay. You know, I've, I've, uh, I, I, when, I was, when they first came out, I, I learned to solve them. I'm not some genius that can solve my head to think, you know, you, you learn the algorithms and stuff like that. So the ones on my desk, there's, 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 I have a couple and they're called speed cubes and they're fast. They're easy to move, you know, because sometimes they just get jammed. Yes. These man, these move good. So I don't do it every day, but before I start something, I take it and I mess it all up and then I solve it. And what I think it does is it kind of settles my brain down. Okay. We also saw a photo of Ronald Reagan. Every politician does good and bad, but I, I like Ronald Reagan a lot. You know, I respected him as president. I mean, that one, 
at that time, you know, was was right in the beginning of good hard rock and heavy metal in, in 1980. And, um, you know, there's a in my life, there was a lot of change. I mean, mostly for the positive, you know, with him as president. And I'm, I like Ronald Reagan a lot. You know? I it was my first time in Germany when he was when he was president. And I was there right after he said, yeah. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down, down this, this wall. wall. And, yes. you know, that made a huge impact on me. Of course. Seeing that change. Um, what else did we see? We saw a, a somber um, Malcolm Young's funeral invite. Yep. It's their family. And I mean, I went down to Australia. There's certain people that I will not miss their funeral. I, if, I don't care how far I have to travel. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went down to that and they, they had those there. And it's I just love that photo of him. Yeah. And I just put it on my desk there. It's, like, it's, it's funny. I look at it every day and I get, you know, I get strength from him. Really nice. Uh, we also saw a copy of Air and Space magazine. I get so many magazines and they all sit there unread for months and I get home and I'll go through them <laughs> and they just stack up. But yeah, I love, I love all that stuff. And what else can we, sorry, hopefully we're not feeling too much like creepers here, but <laughs> we saw a, no, it's all good. a signed photo of a St. Louis card from Tony La Russa. So you got to be a baseball guy. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a, that's my favorite um, major sport is, is baseball. I mean, I, you know, it's funny. I have four teams. I like, I, I like, the Cubs, the, the the Mets, the Braves, and the the Marlins, and it obviously it has to do with proximity. The first game I saw was in 1968 was the Cubs because I grew up in Chicago. Uh, living in Florida, the only team when I was a kid was the Braves. Uh, I saw Hank Aaron hit his 700th home run wow. with my grandfather. Wow! That here's the thing: like, a lot of celebrities and sports stars, and you know they like to come in to see shows, especially ACDC. So Tony Larusa, I, I we had a mutual friend, and, and Tony wanted to come see. I think it was the Scorpions at the time. He's been to see ACDC, but oh, nice! One, one thing I do is I, is I put my headset. You know, I have a headset that I talk to my spots in. Well, I have a spare one, and I'll kind of put it on people that kind of knew that they don't know what I'm doing or I'm talking to, so they listen to me call spots. So he listened to it for a little while, then he gave it to his wife, and uh, she was like, "That's more exciting than the World Series." I'm like, <laughs> "I don't think so, but thank you." But Tony just had a great time, and he's been to a lot of my shows, and and he's just such a such a great guy. And I just he gave me the, he gave me that photo and a signed baseball. Oh, that's cool. That must have been a thrill for you because I was at the show too when ACDC played Wrigley. Oh, that was incredible! Sitting in the, I mean, the whole thing about it. I mean, I still got some ivy. I stole some. Oh, good for you! I, um, wow. So, are you gonna spill the beans for us when they're gonna release that show? Because I saw cameras there. Oh, well, I know, I know. I, I wish I knew. Believe me, I would love to see that show. Yeah, it's a, it's, you know, yeah, exactly, an iconic show and Wrigley Field, all places. Well, speaking of being on the road, when you get a call from ACDC that they're about to hit the road, is there ever a conflict with your schedule, or or do you know way ahead of time? <laughs> There's conflicts, <laughs> yeah. but um, I mean, one caveat: whenever a band asks me for the first time to work with them, my caveat is: listen, when ACDC goes out. I go out with ACDC. Right. And of course, they'll say, well, when are they going out? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> you know when, when I started Aerosmith, you know, I told Steven and the band, I said, I, you know, when ACDC, they said, okay, you know, is there any, you know, anything looming? I said, no, there's nothing. So, and then in uh, 2014, uh, I was going to miss a, just one leg of Aerosmith and told Steven. And he was like, what? You can't leave. I said, <laughs> I told you this because I know you told me this. He says, but. You know, and I got a very good replacement for me, and and he did uh he did he did the run great, and Stephen was happy, and then I came back after the ACDC leg finished, and then I, then Aerosmith was done for the so the next tour. That's awesome. One of my favorite parts of the Let There Be Rock film is at the very beginning with all the crew, they're setting up the show, eating together, and all these years later, well, just ten years later, you'd be joining this this yeah. huge ACDC family. Tell us about some of the veteran crew members. There's like sixty 
people on this show, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it, it's uh, core crew is probably about 60 because you start throwing truck drivers and bus drivers in there and staging guys. I mean, you're into, the, you know, two or three hundred. Right. You know, but the core crew is about 60. We generally have about six or seven buses with about eight to 10 people on each bus, you know. And But as far as the core crew goes, you have your your engineers, you know, front of house sound, lighting, monitors. You have your backline guys, drum tech, guitar tech. You know, you have stage managers and production managers. But it's it's funny since, you know, I started in 1990. Since that time, there's there's uh, there's three of us left. Wow. What is your seniority treatment like then? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I don't know. No, there's no, it, it's, it's weird. It's like, it's not really like this. I mean, obviously everybody has their levels, like you said, seniority and they've been there, but yeah. we're all such a family. You, you don't, you don't think about it. We're all taken care of. I mean, you know, Opie, uh, there's been a lot of guys that have been there since 96. The sound engineer, Pab has been there since 96. You know, the guy that's been there the longest is a, uh, is a uh, Dickie Jones and he's the drum check and he's been there since 1980. Wow. You know, since uh, back in black. That's nuts. You know, and, wow. and he's still there. And, and uh, you know, Chris Dieters, who is the, who is the st- stage manager, uh, Super Chris, as he's known, he's been there. He's been there on and off, but he's been there, I think, since 84, 83 or somewhere. Wow. And he, he's, he's left to do other things, but he's, he's, he comes back every tour now. Well, the, the cool thing we've heard about you, Cosmo, is that you're famous for making day off sheets, which is exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> essentially a, a fun list of things to do for the crew on their day off. So we wanted to know if we could ask you a couple of rapid fire questions based on that. Okay. I'll try. Okay. What's the most beautiful place you've ever traveled to? Okay. There's two, there's two places for different reasons. Can I do the, can I, yes. is that okay yes. with you? The first time I went to Munich, Germany to um, uh, the Marienplatz, which is the square in the center. It was 1987. I was there with Genesis and I was blown away. I just, I felt like it was home to me. And that whole area of Bavaria with the mountains, but the city of Munich is just an incredibly beautiful place. But as far as natural beauty, there's a place outside, it's between Sao Paulo, Brazil, and um, Santos, Brazil, uh, near the coast, and it's in the rainforest, and it is the most far away, incredibly gorgeous. There's waterfalls and rainforest. It's just one of my favorite places on earth. But I got to say, the Grand Canyon is one of my favorite places to go because it's such an, an amazing place. Yes, absolutely. Greg, did you want to jump in and ask a couple of these questions? Sure. Um, favorite food on the road? You know, I'm, I, I'll eat a cheesesteak in Philly. Uh, you know, I'll eat a bratwurst in Munich. I mean, it, it's, and when, it, when I get into a city or, you know, country that I've not been to before, the first thing I do is I go to the concierge to talk about restaurants. And, of course, they tell me this posh place and that posh place. And then I say, no, where would you go to eat? Then they go, ah, and they say, this little place or this little place around the corner is down here. Smart. And, and that's where I go. But my, my, as I said, my favorite food is generally the, the, the local cuisine. Go a little tangent here. But <laughs> the one cool thing about traveling is I found that we're all the same. We want to entertain and show. You know, we want to cook for people. We want them to taste our cuisines and our liquor and see the sights. They, they, you know, you're proud of where you're from. How about uh, favorite people, favorite culture? Oh, you know, I'll tell you right now, I mean, I love everybody everywhere, but if you ask me the one place where I was most blown away by the people is Basque country in Spain, northern Spain. Oh. But I went out and I met a guy in a bar and we went bar hopping and we picked up people that were friends along the way. (laughs) And we ended up in this bar that one of them owned. And I'm still friends to this day with those people. And they're like, I, I cannot tell you how incredible they are and the hearts they have and the honesty they are, they are salt of the earth and, you know. That's so fun. 
Um, so you guys are city to city all the time. What what city does your crew have the most fun in? Uh, well, back in the day, it was Amsterdam because everything was legal there. Pot and, you know, mainly pot. Everybody wanted to get stoned. But any city in Europe is fun. I mean, you know, for the most part, everybody wants to go see things. That's why I do day off sheets because I want to get people out. Don't forget why we're touring, I tell them. You know, we're, it's great being ahead of doing a job, but one of, the, one of the perks of our job is being able to see all these different places and meet different people and cuisines and cultures. How about the biggest ACDC fans? Oh, my God. Uh, I would say, I mean, everywhere. It's, it's amazing how ACDC has fans everywhere. But, I mean, you know, you look at where we've done videos, uh, and that tells you a lot because we don't just arbitrarily pick a place to do a show. The band say, right. let's do a show here, do a show there. I got to say, the show we did in Buenos Aires, Yeah, I mean, you've seen the video, you know, live at uh, River Plate. I mean, my God, that crowd was amazing. Insane. You know, but we did the Bullring in, in, in uh, Madrid. That was another amazing show. Right. Um, the Germans are you know, manic about ACDC. Yes. Can't leave out the Germans. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, the Australians. I mean, so, but I, I got to say that the Buenos Aires show to this day was one of the most amazing shows I've ever seen. And I got to say the film shows it. Yes. You know, it really, really, they caught it. Um, David Mallet caught the, the fans in a great way on that, on that movie. Yes, he did. Uh, last one, Greg. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have the benefit of doing a video call with you. So we get to see you in your office there. I see a lot of cool ACDC mementos that you have in there. What is the, the most prized ACDC possession that you do have from touring? Oh, man. Uh, probably the most prized possession. I mean, I've got a lot. You can imagine. I've got a lot of ACDC things. I've got, you know, stuff from shows. You know, you know it's just, a, you know, I've got memorabilia, jackets and shirts and, you know, posters. Um, I get guitar picks and drumsticks and, you know, very personal things. Um, but I got to say the most amazing thing I have, and it's without a doubt, there used to be a, a, a guy named Pete who would bring guitars to Angus. And sadly, he was killed in a car accident in the, in the mid-90s. But he came out in 1990 or 91. And he would bring a selection of SGs to Angus because he, he knew what Angus liked. And Angus trusted him. He had this one guitar, which was a it was an SG. But the original SG wasn't called the SG. It was called a, a Les Paul Custom. At the end of the day, Les Paul didn't like it. He didn't like the design. It. He didn't want his name on it. So they changed it to SG. Um, but the first one was called Les Paul Custom. And it was white. 1961 had had a gold hardware on it. Peter brought this guitar to Angus, and it was light and beautiful. I mean, the the, it, the guitar was beat up; it was all the hardware wasn't on it. Angus loved it, but it was all original. And he said, "I love it, but I can't paint it. I'm not going to play a white guitar because he doesn't play white guitars." And and I was there, and he's and we're looking at the guitar, and he and he said, "That's a 61." I guess that's the same year I was born. And he looked at the guitar and looked at me, and he handed it to me. Wow. Oh, wow. Same year as your birth. It's yours. And, you, and basically, he gave it to me. And I got him to sign it. And it's, 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 my, it's my prized possession to this day. You know, so. That's fantastic. Wow. That must mean a lot. It does. When you're off the road, do you have any examples of amazing moments you shared with an ACDC member or members that you don't mind sharing with listeners? Well, no, no, I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I get, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. There's, there's two Brian Johnsons to me. I mean, Brian lives in Florida, and, and I go to his house hang out with him and you know he loves sports and he loves to cook and and uh, he loves to eat we go out and eat we barbecue um he's a lot of fun to hang out with and there's two brian johnsons there's brian johnson the lead singer for acdc this idol guy you know this iconic sure singer and there's brian johnson my friend and it's just this weird thing and i always have to switch it off yeah this is brian johnson the singer for he's now it's my friend and we hang out and 
the one thing about ACDC, unlike most musicians, I'm not saying anything bad about any other musicians, but ACDC, you're so down to earth and so normal, regular guys. There's not, they're not rock star, you know, they're not pretentious, you know, they don't, I mean, of course they all live and enjoy their lives, but they, they're not, it's, it's hard to explain. They're so down to earth. They're, they're just basic guys. And I, when I'm with Brian, I forget that he's the singer for ACDC. Right. You know? When was the first time you saw ACDC, by the way? 1980. Okay, so you saw the Back in Black tour. Is there, yeah. do you have a favorite ACDC album after Back in Black? After Back in Black. Um, everyone talks about the Back in Black and before, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, like, I love Power Rage. I mean, um, obviously, Razor's Edge was, was a great album. Yeah. Fly in the Wall, Flick of the Switch, they're okay albums. I don't listen to them. I, well, I'll tell you what, I like listening to stuff now that, they don't play. Yeah. It's not, not that I'm tired of hearing them play, but it's just nice hearing other stuff as well. I don't know. I would say Razor's Edge is probably my favorite album after that. But I mean, I, I, I've loved everything. That, I mean, Black Ice is probably the next one. Yeah. I mean, that had so many great songs on it. You know, and the new one, though, the tribute to Malcolm on it is, is you know, just pulls your heartstrings. Yes. It's, it's funny how they manage to put, pump out these albums and still have two or three stunningly great songs. I'm not saying the others aren't, but you know what I mean? They're just... Right. They're always going to be there. Do, do you have a favorite ACDC track that you've always wanted to lit? Like, hey, can we throw this in the set list? My favorite song to run is Shoot to Thrill. It's my favorite song to run. Yeah. I wouldn't have said that before. Uh, but my favorite ACDC song, oh my God, there's so many, but Sin City is a longtime favorite for me. Yeah. I don't think we did it for a couple of tours and then it came back again. And it's such a great song for me to write. It's something I always wanted to put on my It's a classic, yeah. Cosmo, ACDC Beyond the Thunder is about how this one band's music, style, attitude has influenced so many different people in incredibly profound ways. And although you've worked with around 50 unique acts, how would you say ACDC has affected your life? Well, you know, and I've said this to each band member. I mean, you know, obviously they affected my life when I was, when I was young, you know, when, when I heard, you know, Highway to Hell and High Voltage. I mean, and, and then, you know, Back in Black changed my life. And I've said this directly to Angus, you guys are the soundtrack. Of, you've been the soundtrack of my life. Obviously, everybody has songs that remind them of something that happened in their life, good, bad, you know, summer they had. ACDC, just from listening to them in my youth and then working for them and get to getting to know them, to me, I mean, they're the most influential band in my life, you know, for, for, for two reasons, because of the music they've put out and written, put out and my relationship with the band and running lights for them, you know. What does light mean to you? How does light affect us as humans? The one thing I, I like to be careful with when I do shows, and AC, I, as I, I want the lights to augment. I, I don't want it to take away. I mean, the one thing, the first thing I do is light the band. The reason the people are there is to see the band. So the first thing I do is light the band, and then, and then everything else is just an enhancement. I don't necessarily want people to walk away and go, what a great light show. I want people to walk away and say, what a great show. Right. I think you had called out Oslo, Norway in 91 during the Razor's Edge tour. That something special happened. Can you describe that? That was the first time. I mean, we'd been out for a little while. But just with that one show, everything, it's hard to explain. You really can't explain it unless you're there. Everything was just gelling, for lack of, you know, the cliche. Everything gelled. 
but it, it really did. It was it was the, between the band playing and the crowd and and the lights and the sound and everything together. It was just all of a sudden it was like we were all one. Perfect. It was just just amazing. I mean, I'm getting chill bumps thinking about that one show, and I've had a few since then. But that was the first time I'd really experienced that. It was it was a uh, I, I can't explain it. It was just everybody was feeding off of everybody else. What's your prediction for ACDC's future? Well, I I mean. You know, Angus, it's funny, I, I, you'll love this. In 1990, when, when they were doing the Road Razor's Edge tour, uh, they, what, they, they were doing a press conference, and well, I, I wasn't doing it, I was there, and they asked, they asked the band, uh, is this the last ACDC tour? <laughs> 1990s. <laughs> and, and Malcolm laughed, and he goes, no, it's just another tour. <laughs> he said, well, Dave, how long do you think you'll tour? And, and uh, you know, that's been asked a lot of times. And Angus's general answer is, until we can't fill arenas, until, you know, we feel like we can't play anyone. You know, as long as we have fans, we're going to tour. So. It's never the last tour. I don't foresee ACDC doing the final farewell tour or anything. They're just going to tour. You know, that's what they do. It's a drag that we haven't toured in six years, but with the pandemic and everything. Right. And well, with the 50th anniversary, fingers are crossed, and we'll be there for sure. And maybe we can buy you a drink, too. I would, I would love that. And I, and I, I don't know. I mean, ACDC surprised me. Like, I don't know if they'll do a, an official 50th anniversary tour. I think they'll just do another tour. Yeah. You know, I, I'm hoping they do. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. The last tour wasn't the last tour. It was a tour. Right. You know, so. Well, we mentioned before that the crew can sometimes be frustrated musicians. Uh, yeah. Knowing what you know now, would you rather be in a band or still in the crew? I love what I do now. Although, you know, as a create, as a musician, you want to create. I would have loved to go back and create music. But on the other hand, I like, I love what I do right now. And, you know, rock stars, okay, they're rich and I, it's a hard life sometimes. And, and there's a lot of pressures and, I always say I feel my my life. I feel like a rock star, but I don't have to give interviews. Right. So right, you don't have that baggage. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, you know I don't get recognized in public, and you know, and and I, my life's not out there, uh, you know, for everybody to see, and drug problems, and alcohol problems, and you know, marital problems or whatever. And and uh, so it's I, I like the as I always say I I I, my, I do my job on the dark side of the arena. <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, congrats on the new biz, by the way. It looks like you, you've got uh, Gateway is just cranking this new uh, facility. Gateway is a, a, a great company. I mean, the combination, I mean, obviously it's about the studios they're building. And I really hope that one day ACDCs were doing rehearsals in there. Uh, but the fact that they've created a lighting sound and, and a video company, and they brought me in, they brought me in originally to uh, help put together the lighting company, which meant a lot to me. Because you know, that's how I started. Uh, my roots are, is, you know, working as a lighting crew guy. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Cosmo, you're such a shining light, an incredible inspiration, one Hall of Fame rock and roll lighting guy. We salute you, your ACDC Road Crew family members, and thanks so much for being on ACDC Beyond the Thunder. The thing I like about this show is it, it, is it shows the love that our people have for ACDC from all walks of life. Yes. And, um, and it, you know, it's very obvious you know, looking at all the different people you've had o over the years. Before we let you go, before we flick the switch, I should say, yeah. we have our final question that we ask all our guests. If you had to describe ACDC in one word, what would yours be, Cosmo? Oh, boy. Um, the, it's factual when you said that the first word that came to, to my mind was rock. Rock. ACDC Beyond the Thunder theme song, Trailer Trash, written and performed by Gannon Arnold. VO Talent by Bruce Jacobson. Cinematography and sound recording by Greg Ferguson. Edited and mixed by Eric Keel. Written, directed, and hosted by Kurt Squires. Produced by Greg Ferguson, Eric Keel, and Kurt Squires. 
ACDC Beyond the Thunder is a Squires LLC current motion production. Copyright Beyond the Thunder podcast, all rights reserved. This has been a Nat Attack presentation. Shazbot Nanu Nana. This season, there's something we wanted to talk to all of our ACDC Beyond the Thunder listeners about that's really important to us. As you know, what we do here is free of advertisements, so there's no revenue stream coming into this show. This is strictly a passion project. But if you enjoy the program and you believe in what we're doing, we're asking to donate what you can to each episode of ACDC Beyond the Thunder podcast. By doing so, you contribute to making dreams come true through the Make-A-Wish and Nordif Robbins Music Therapy Foundations. And 100% of those profits go directly to these deserving causes. How can you help? Simply go to beyondthethunder.com and hit the charity button before or after listening to each episode, and that's it. Even if you give $1, $2, $5, Greg, Eric, and I would be so thankful, and we salute the ACDC Beyond the Thunder community for leaning in. That's beyondthethunder.com.